Hi, I'm Cleo, and this is the podcast in which I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. I'm back, and as you can hear, I'm no longer suffering from a cold, so I'm ready to talk about Taylor Swift and musical theater. But before we get into that, I do want to continue talking about All Too Well really briefly, just about one more thing that has to do with that song, because apparently I can't move on from it. But anyway, and that's the that's the idea that, that seems to be coming up a lot, that sort of in fan theory, uh, the scarf is actually a metaphor for Taylor's virginity. I think that this provides a good opportunity to talk about literary metaphors, what they can tell us, and how, you know, as academics, uh, we might think about them, um, and how that might differ from how sort of a general public um, seems to think about them. I was trying to figure out the origin of of this virginity theory. It's so widespread that it was apparently a subject of of discussion on the television talk show The View. But I found a Guardian article about the scarf that mostly sort of gives this familiar narrative of the scarf, you know, noting that Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jake's sister, was asked about it in an interview and had never heard of it, and that Jake's friend recently tweeted that he actually had the scarf. And then at the end, The Guardian sort of mentions this fan theory of the scarf's metaphorical link to virginity. while essentially dismissing the theory out of hand. But in doing so, it links to a TikTok by a user called James's Smiling that seems to be the origin of this theory, or at least of one version of this theory. Uh, the TikTok in which the virginity theory is argued is really interesting and is based on a close reading of the text of the 10-minute version of All Too Well in relation, among other things, to metaphors used for virginity in Christian purity culture and the ways in which people talk about virginity and the loss of virginity sort of in general in American culture. So definitely look that up if you're interested. It's really, really interesting. And I think it's really nuanced. The creator of that TikTok also notes, you know, importantly, that virginity is a concept used to oppress women and femmes, as they point out. And it's not a real thing, but it's a real way that some people think. And I think that it's a really interesting reading of the song and exactly the kind of close engagement with Taylor's work that we value on this podcast. And I think this provides a great opportunity to talk about the relationship between literary analysis and real life, because the scarf is this sort of uniquely confusing object in relation to both in kind of a fascinating way. For example, you know, inciting this TikTok, the author of the Guardian article, Nadia Komami, notes that, quote, a small number of fans speculate the scarf may actually be a metaphor for Swift's virginity, though this is entirely conjecture, although that's highly unlikely. And I totally agree with Komami that it's unlikely that Swift means, in that Taylor is intending to communicate through the medium of the scarf, that she lost her virginity to Jake. Just as I don't think she means, as in intends to communicate this to her readers, to identify the true location of the scarf as object. Um, I don't think that, that she wants us to believe it's literally really in Jake Gyllenhaal's drawer. But the scarf is a curious thing that kind of opens the way to a number of potential interpretations. And I thought it might be interesting to sort of comment on this from the vantage of someone who deals in metaphor professionally, that is, as someone who teaches English to college students. How might I and my fellow academics approach this issue of the scarf as a metaphor for virginity? Those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while know that the scarf is no stranger to this podcast. In fact, two episodes ago, I argued that the audience of the 10-minute version is intended to understand the speaker as potentially deluded about the location of the scarf, as believing probably wrongly that the boyfriend still has and in fact treasures something he in fact cares so little about that he has lost it or, or given it away. Or maybe it got lost in the mail. There's crucially no evidence for the idea that it's hiding in the boyfriend's drawer apart from the fact that 
the speaker asserts this to be so. And in fact, it was last seen not in his drawer, but at his sister's house. And to me, this is a fundamental point of the song, that it's about lying to yourself about what you remember about someone and how they remember you, even in the moment in which you're attempting to give a true account of your relationship. And you can agree or disagree with that in part or in whole, of course, just as I can agree or disagree in part or in whole that we can see the scarf as an emblem of lost virginity, specifically. In fact, I've already given another, you know, separate and to some degree incompatible reading of the scarf as a version of how one's one's personhood is affected by engagement with other people. In episode three of this podcast, you know, I give a reading of All Too Well in comparison to Cardigan, in which the speaker is an old cardigan under someone's bed. Objects of clothing, I suggest there, are ways of thinking through the ways in which one's identity is affected by how other people feel about you, choose to use or display you. And therefore, the fact that the scarf and Taylor's old self are both lost to her that she can't find them as a way of talking about the inevitability of absolute change that a breakup brings with it. So I think all of these interpretations are convincing in their own way and shed different kinds of light on the song. But you know, what does the scarf mean? (laughs) Does it mean the fallibility of memory, the loss of virginity, or the change to one's feelings of personal identity that come with a breakup? Probably frustratingly, you know, I would say, and I think most literary Uh, critics or academics would say, it means all of these things, you know, depending on what particular meaning you're interested in finding in the song. After all, analyzing a work of literature isn't the same as trying to decode it, to point to the secret messages or statements about the real world hiding in it. Rather, it means exploring the ways in which its ambiguity is in itself meaningful and, and interesting. And I really like the way that the TikTok video I cited ends by saying women's bodies have received enough scrutiny and it doesn't matter whether Taylor lost her virginity to Jake. And that's true. And what that makes clear, I think, and I think the author of that TikTok would agree, is that ultimately this theory doesn't really have anything to do with Taylor's actual body. It's ultimately a reading of the song as potentially revealing, you know, the speaker's feelings about virginity and allowing us to understand her position within the context of purity culture, the ways people talk and think about virginity in some corners of contemporary America. And sometimes people, you know, dismiss literary analysis by Taylor Swift fans as conspiracy theory or reading too much into things because it tends to use biographical evidence or to have as its main takeaway an argument about something that that Taylor has allegedly done or felt. An example is queer readings of Taylor's songs that end by trying to argue that Taylor herself is or was in a lesbian relationship with a particular woman. You know, that a particular song is about Carly Kloss, for example. And I totally understand that some people find this kind of reading fun and that their end game is to claim that Taylor has been in actual particular lesbian relationships, and that's fine. You know, for a lot of people, the payoff of close attention to Taylor's work is to speculate about her private life. But I think it's interesting to note that this is probably the biggest difference between the ways in which fans read and the ways in which academics read. For those of us who specialize in literary analysis, biographical detail is actually neither helpful nor harmful in explaining our interpretations. In fact, the proof of a particular reading lies in you being able to argue it convincingly with reference to the text. If you're interested in learning more about the difference between thinking about texts and thinking about biography within the context of the study of literature, you can listen to episode one of this podcast. And so, you know, in some ways this is an oversimplification, but I think it's kind of helpful in thinking about the differences between fan readings and, you know, academic readings of literature. For example, imagine replacing, you know, references to Taylor Swift and her metaphors uh, with a discussion of Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick. I'm not sure we would expect to read a sentence like, some speculate the leg that Moby Dick eats may actually be a metaphor for Ahab's virginity, though this is entirely conjecture, although that's highly unlikely. 
After all, one might respond, isn't all literature kind of unlikely? And who's to say what kinds of conjectures as to the symbolism of that novel are less true than, than, than others? Isn't everything entirely conjecture? So anyway, hopefully this was an interesting uh, perspective. By all means, though, continue to interpret things in the ways that feel most joyful and, and productive for you. I've actually just found this article from The Atlantic in 2014 titled Taylor Swift Lost Her Virginity to Jake Gyllenhaal Probably? And this is not based on a close reading of any of the songs from Red, but coming from a publication called Radar, uh, which published this as an exclusive. And so this was actually an idea that was kind of around before it was tied to this close reading of the 10 minute all too well. I don't know, this is actually, this this Atlantic article is actually pretty, pretty creepy. Um, and I don't think that it would be written in this way now. This is a small snippet. That is an understandably terrible experience for a 21-year-old who, quote, thought she was going to marry Jake Gyllenhaal and gave up her virginity to him for that reason. But how badly should we feel for a platinum-selling artist who seemingly pursues a heartache with famous men in order to write universally relatable songs about it? Not very badly. If anything, true Swift fans should write a thank you note to Gyllenhaal for helping inspire their favorite mundanely observational songs about a 20-something woman's aggressively teenage emotion. Um, sort of a reminder, actually, of um, how far we've come in terms of be- people being openly misogynistic in in their references to Taylor Swift. I think that there has been, you know, societal change to the extent that that um, the idea that, that that all too well is about Taylor's uh, lost virginity is not sort of this uh, kind of joke about about Taylor and her outsized emotions, but is actually something that people are debating more as if they're talking about a literary work, but still not not entirely. So um, anyway, we're starting a short series on Taylor Swift and musical theater. Uh, it's going to be a two episode series. They're very, very short. (laughs) Um, Episode two, uh, two of two, will be about Taylor's work on Cats the Movie with Andrew Lloyd Webber based on poems by T.S. Eliot, and I'm very excited about that. It's possible it will come out next week, but perhaps next week will instead be an episode on some of Taylor's Christmas songs. I don't know. I can't see the future. Anyway, it's coming. Today, I want to leave you with this question. What relationship is there between Taylor Swift and Stephen Sondheim? So shortly after the announcement of Sondheim's death, you know, through my tears, I saw that Jack Antonoff had had made this memorial post on Twitter that, although it was kind of weirdly aggressive, was also sort of fascinating. And this read, um, if you can't hear Into the Woods and what I've been doing, listen closer, the best to do it, RIP. So, you know, of course, um, Sondheim was indeed the best to write musical theater, and it's a great loss. You know, I'm not going to talk about the loss of Sondheim. I'm going to talk about what Sondheim can tell us about Taylor Swift. Um, so, um, so Antonov does many things, and probably primarily at this point, you know, he's running bleachers, um, and it might be that he's referring to bleachers in this comment. I don't know their music super well, um, I admit. But I don't hear much Sondheim in, for example, I want to get better. Although I was kind of trying to figure this out. Uh, The Wikipedia page gives as influences for bleachers, you know, in general, the music of the late 80s and early 90s and the high school based films of John Hughes. Uh, And of course, Into the Woods is also 
80s music. So, um, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe it is an influence for bleachers. So many commenters on this post responded with confusion, and depressingly, many of them thought this was a Taylor Swift Easter egg, or a mistaken reference to her song Out of the Woods, which was written and produced with Jack Antonoff. I think people are expecting 1989 Easter eggs, uh, because that is potentially the next re-recorded album to drop, that seems really likely, and a lot of them did delete their comments once they realized their mistake, so there are mostly just a lot of comments saying things like, you know, Swifties, this is not about you. He's talking about the legendary composer Stephen Sondheim. He just passed. And guys, this has nothing to do with Taylor Swift. Please stop. So anyway, what does this have to do with Taylor Swift? (laughs) No, seriously though, does someone have any thoughts about this? Because when I read it, I immediately thought of folklore, and specifically of the songs that Antonov co-wrote or produced on that album. Those songs are My Tears Ricochet, Mirrorball, Seven, August, This Is Me Trying, Betty, and of course The Lakes. If we are to take this as an injunction to look more closely into what Antonov is doing for Traces of Sondheim, you know, is there something Sondheimian about these songs? Well, to me there definitely is, but actually a much closer parallel than Into the Woods to me would be Follies and A Little Night Music, with their portrayals of aging performers, showgirls, and an actress, respectively. And here I'm thinking specifically of Mirrorball, which is the place where I most see this possible, you know, influence. Um, When I listen to Mirrorball, I hear a little of both I'm Still Here from Follies and Send in the Clowns from A Little Night Music especially in these lines uh, from Mirrorball. And they called off the circus, burned the disco down, when they sent home the horses and the rodeo clowns. I'm still on that tightrope. I'm still trying everything to get you laughing at me. I'm still a believer, but I don't know why. I've never been a natural. All I do is try, try, try. I'm still on that trapeze. I'm still trying everything to keep you looking at me. I had to look this up. Um, Rodeo clowns are apparently bullfighters who distract the bull to keep it from attacking another bullfighter. Um, And sometimes they do actually wear clown makeup and sort of make fun of of cowboy stereotypes, according to Wikipedia at least, which is pretty interesting. And if you Google this, you can find some pictures of people wearing clown makeup and cowboy hats. And certainly, although this is not explicit in the song, if we're to read this, the speaker of Mirrorball as reflecting Taylor in some way as an artist, this could be a way of thinking about Taylor's background in country music. Perhaps the, the loss of the rodeo clowns, meaning the loss of certain comfortable country trappings or letting go of slightly goofy country music themes or something. Um, so this is a circus, and although it's a dangerous circus, and um, anyway, it's ended, you know, the, the horses have been sent home and the disco burnt down, Taylor is left doing her dangerous tricks on the tightrope and trapeze without an audience and without the circus's institutional support. And I think the idea of uh, horses and rodeo clowns being sent home in Mirrorball and Taylor still being on her tightrope, although it reframes this show business metaphor slightly, uh, is essentially functioning in the same way as, as Send in the Clowns. I feel like Send in the Clowns is pretty well known, but uh, in it, you know, Desiree essentially reflects on her love affair with Frederick as a circus that's gone wrong. Isn't it rich? Aren't we a pair? Me here at last on the ground and you in midair. Send in the Clowns. Isn't it bliss, don't you approve, one who keeps tearing around and one who can't move? But where are the clowns? Send in the clowns. 
Desiree is entering a circus having messed up her act, you know, on the ground, but with her partner in the air. And, you know, the, what she's sort of referring to is that she's in love with, a, with an old lover who has recently gotten married to a very young wife. And that there's this sort of problem with, with timing. Her life has turned into farce. Her timing has gone off. And so what should be serious becomes slapstick. But a slapstick without clowns. Or rather, I think the implication is that she's the clown and she doesn't even know it. She doesn't recognize the clown as being herself. So she's asking for the clowns to be sent in, but there's no one there except, of course, for her. Uh, somewhat in contrast to this, I'm Still Here in Follies is a celebration of the vicissitudes of life and show business. As Carlotta, the singer of that song, reflects, I should have gone to an acting school, that seems clear. Still, someone said she's sincere, so I'm here. And after outlining a life full of swift changes of fortune, first you're another slow-eyed vamp, then someone's mother, then your camp, then your career from career to career, she concludes, I've run the gamut A to Z, three cheers and damn it, c'est la vie. I got through all of last year and I'm here. Lord knows at least I was there and I'm here. Look who's here, I'm still here. And of course, this seems to anticipate Taylor's I'm still on that tightrope, I'm still on that trapeze, I'm still trying everything, just as it also actually seems to, to anticipate the repeated I was there at the end of All Too Well, the 10 minute version. So I would probably point to Follies and a little night music actually with their focus on the, the joys and tribulations of show business, growing older, reflecting on your romantic mistakes, and also their tendency towards nostalgia as closer parallels to folklore and evermore than Into the Woods specifically. However, there are the obvious parallels. You know, Into the Woods is a retelling of various fairy tales within a threatening forest space, which represents the uncertainties of our lives. And wandering through this ambiguous woodland becomes a way of reflecting on the kind of things that can happen to you without notice, such as death and children. Um, or as Sondheim himself puts it in Look, I Made a Hat, the, the woods is the all-purpose symbol of the unconscious, the womb, the past, the dark place where we face our trials and emerge wiser or destroyed. So yes, so this idea of tales being told, retold, you know, changed, um, revised within this forest environment, you know, I think I think you could definitely make a connection to folklore, the album, uh, through that. But I don't know. I actually find myself wanting to argue for connections between folklore and Evermore and pretty much every other Sondheim musical, including, you know, Passion and, and Sunday in the Park with George, except for Into the Woods, which I don't know that it has that much in common with beyond the obvious. So... I don't know. I don't quite know where to go with this because although intriguing, you know, I suspect Antonov in this comment might be thinking more about Sondheim as a composer than a lyricist and maybe referring specifically to, to you know, to his work that is not a collaboration with Taylor Swift. But I thought that it was such an intriguing connection between Antonov and Sondheim and therefore potentially between Sondheim and Taylor Swift that I really wanted to sort of address it and, and try to think about it a little more. But maybe the Twitter commentators were right because maybe this actually doesn't have anything to do with Taylor Swift. But anyway, next week we will keep talking about musical theater, this time with more secure ground under our feet, as of course Taylor not only wrote an additional song for, but also appeared in the movie version of Cats. And I am so excited to get into that. Anyway, write in, let me know what you think of this. Is there any Into the Woods and Folklore and Evermore? Thank you for listening to Studies in Taylor Swift. Send in questions or comments to studiesintaylorswift at gmail.com. You're listening to Happy Strumming by Audionautics. 